All I wanna do is see you turn into a giant woman, a giant woman. All I wanna be is someone who gets to see a giant woman. All I wanna do is help you turn into a giant woman, a giant woman. All I wanna be is someone who gets to see a giant woman. Oh, I know it'll be great, and I just can't wait to see the person you are. Together, if you give it a chance, you could do a huge dance. Because you are a giant woman, you might even like being together. And if you don't, it won't be forever. But if it were me, I'd really want to be a giant woman, a giant woman. All I want to do is see you turn into a giant woman. This week on Giant Woman, we'll be talking about the episodes Bubble Buddies and Serious Steven. How are you doing, Jane? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing all right. I, yeah, hopefully we'll be quiet on my end, although I have a dog who is standing sentry at the door. (laughs) I have dogs that might snore occasionally. They're taking a nap on the bed. Oh, that's nice. Ruthie might get in the way of my funky flow. I just really wanted to be able to say I'm <laughs> getting in the way of my funky flow is perhaps like one of the best phrases ever. Okay. Well, let's start with the funky flow then. What is Steven's funky flow? Oh, it's, I, I think Steven's funky flow is just being a doof. Um, <laughs> what? Hi, my name is Steven. Hi, my name is Steven. <laughs> I don't know why, but that little chorus of him practicing saying hello and introducing himself gets stuck in my head all the time. When uh-huh. I'm, when I'm just bored and walking around, it's like, what? My name is Steven? <laughs> Steven? Steven? <laughs> um, but yeah, we finally get our introduction to Connie. Who we've been expecting to come around because she's in the opening credits. Yes, and, and wistfully so. Um Especially at this point, uh, later on, the intro does change, and she does not seem as wistful, but at the beginning, she definitely has the big starry eyes and this skirt and hair getting caught in the wind, and there's a little bit of being painted as the heroine that we know is coming any minute. Um, So I, I remember I was very excited about this episode when I knew it was coming. Um, See, I had no idea that it was coming. It was just there. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, that's cool. What is your first impression of Connie? I'm curious. Um, My first impression of Connie is that she kind of reminds me of me. <laughs> of just being like, a, you know, a complete bookworm and uh, kind of socially awkward. Not, I mean, Stephen's socially awkward too, but she's socially awkward in a completely different sort of way. She's able to pass herself off as not being as awkward as she actually is. But just kind of like being very alone and um, smart, um, very observational. Um, and, and she's pe- she's a pessimist also. So that's one thing that we don't have in common because I'm not a pessimist. She's very reserved also. She, I mean, one of the things I love about this show and how it introduces her is that Stephen is nervous to go talk to her. And she is essentially hiding in the corner on the beach reading a book. So it's clear she's kind of avoiding people. 
Mm-hmm. So there's already this dynamic of Stephen thinks she's way cooler than him for the sheer fact that she's a kid that he hasn't met. Uh, and Stephen, you know, just loves everybody so much. Um, and I, I really appreciate uh, how Amethyst, Garnet, and Pearl respond to Stephen's, I don't know. Uh, romantic gestures? Both romantic gestures, but also it seems like this may perhaps be one of the first times Stephen has really asked for, like, hey, give me some space. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work my magic. Which kind of indicates that Stephen's approaching this as more than just a friendship. Right. And which is why I love so much, um, and it gets repeated really shortly after, we have Pearl talking about setting up a play date and trying to figure out what her favorite tea is. Um, because that's where Pearl is in mothering. And it's funny looking back on, I, when I first saw this, I, I don't think I thought of this quite as nuanced. I mostly just read it as Pearl still thinking Stephen was like a small child. Um, uh-huh. but watching it again, it, it, it just makes Pearl feel very alien. Uh, like she's learned parenting from TV. Uh, probably leave it to Beaver. <laughs> Which would explain a lot. <laughs> Um, yeah. Uh, Amethyst is, uh, you know, kind of teasing Stephen about it in that very big sister sort of way. Yeah. So there, there's still that dynamic going on. And Garnet, of course, who actually knows more about relationships than anyone would actually think at this point. Right. It's just like, just talk to her. Yeah. Garnet gets to be the trust yourself, dude. It's gonna be okay. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I do wish, that there was a way that I could go back and remember exactly how I felt the first time I watched it. It is a very different experience watching um, Garnet's reactions to things, knowing what's to come. Uh Uh-huh. Which kind of puts us in a Garnet sort of position. Right. When we're watching it again. I think I said that before, but it's worth saying again. It's worth revisiting because I think until really the end of the season and jailbreak, we get a lot of these small character moments of Garnet that I I really only am now understanding just how much they are foreshadowing and teasing and calling back to each other of knowing where it's going now, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm kind of consistently impressed with by the show that I, I can rewatch it and still kind of get new nuances from the characters. Um, yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Well, just it's yeah, the writing is so impressive mm. that they uh that they're able to play with we know these characters in this mythology so well that we can just tease it in a little bits in advance because we know there's gonna be a payoff. We right. know what that payoff is gonna be. Um so yeah, I think this is the first time we see Steven's bubble. Uh-huh. And not just that, we this is I'm not sure if it's the only time. They don't do it as much anymore, but we definitely see this first time we get a full rose shape blossoming into the yes. bubble. Yes. Uh, which I love, and I'm, I'm sure you do. Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he doesn't know how to make it go away. <laughs> the The <gasps> fact that he doesn't know how to make it go away is... It's so good on so many levels. Clearly, the very obvious adolescent boy things. <laughs> we don't need to talk about boners in detail, I think. 
not in too much detail, but since you brought them up. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that at all, actually. Were you not? No, I was thinking that Stephen subconsciously doesn't want the bubble to go away because it means that he and Connie have to spend more time together, which is what he really wants. True, but it it's also um, a sign of his attraction and desire that he has no control over. I think it's interesting that the bubble finally pops when they make a genuine, genuine emotional connection to each other. Right, when, um, when the tension is eased. They are, and maybe we can kind of talk about that in terms of what literally happens, because we slowly get this buildup of a variety of situations where Steven's just, I mean, Steven kind of mansplains a bunch of shit. It's like, no, no, no. Uh, you know, he says he and Lars are best friends, and Lars and Sadie are crazy about each other, and they're gonna get the harpoon, um... And throughout the episode, we see Connie being like, are, are you sure? Like, are, no, but really, are you sure? She's much more grounded in, in reality. And she thinks of cause and effect. Um, <laughs> but there's something to say about the fact that Stephen is bluffing because he wants to impress her and how well he's under control of everything, and it's okay because he knows everyone so well. But we also get to learn about Connie, that she was willing to go along with all of it just to, to have a friend. Despite her reservations. Yeah. Well, and it's not like she had better ideas herself. I mean, her idea was basically, and actually it was probably a better idea, was just to simply wait for the crystal gems to come out. Yeah, no. and D that Let's just wait on the beach. <laughs> Yeah, if they had just stayed where they were, I mean, they wouldn't have caught the worm. Um, but yeah, they wouldn't have ended up at the bottom of the ocean. They, And if they hadn't ended up at the bottom of the ocean, they probably wouldn't have had some kind of emotional catharsis. Right. Um, so there's definitely, I think, an aspect of, I don't know, would we call it hubris? Where they're both having to face their their faults in the situation to find a solution? Perhaps. I didn't think about Connie's hubris, but right. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about it earlier, but the more that I watch and I think about how Connie and Stephen are in this episode, they balance each other out. She's too serious. He makes jokes. He makes too many jokes. She gets serious. So there's a real give and take between the two of them from the beginning that isn't necessarily strictly along gender roles either at least not stereotypical gender roles right um steven's the one who's going to try and draw pictures for onion to read right and connie can actually write backwards right <laughs> and it's not only something that steven can't do he would never have thought to simply write it <laughs> that that's not <laughs> that's not his funky flow <laughs> Now, his funky flow doesn't really work right now. He has no control over his funky flow, so maybe he should let people interfere. Well, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense, because Stephen is a font of creativity. Right. He's got all these ideas, and they're not all good ideas, and some of them are actually positively bad ideas, particularly getting on the roller coaster. The roller coaster bit is one of my favorites, though, just because we get this moment where Connie completely calls him on his shit. She's just like, wait, no, 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 no. And then what? 
And he's like, and then we're free. <laughs> I love the fact that she she almost is about to just say, okay, wait, S- Stephen, we need to wait and think things through. And Stephen just forges on forward. When when they get to Funland, <laughs> Stephen's like, this is Funland. All kinds of horrible accidents happen here every day. And it's funny because I just rewatched it uh, with a friend and he... <laughs> This is kind of why I love having people new watching with me sometimes, is because he was just like, did he really just say that? <laughs> did he really just say that accidents happen there every day? And I was like, yes, actually. Horrible accidents. Horrible accidents. <laughs> and then we get another one of those great um, visual animation gags with, uh, what's his name, Mr. Smiley? Mm-hmm. When he picks up Stephen and is like, "You don't get to do this ever again." Um, well, that's in the next. That's in the next episode. Oh, is that this, in the next? This episode? foreshadows the teacup incident. Oh, right. This foreshadows that he gets he gets to make horrible faces at Stephen, um, but that will lead into the next. Sorry, mixing things up. Uh, <laughs> but I I do remember one. Um, one thing that I, I loved the first time and I still adore is the actual moment when they first land at the bottom of the sea mm-hmm. and we get a really big shift in animation style, a uh, shift in the rhythm of the narrative in a way that, I, I don't know, felt really complicated in a good way. When I'm dealing with mythology, anytime you're going down, mm. to me, uh, indicates that we're we're getting into some of the more subconscious motivations and feelings of the characters, um, or at least when mythology is working really well. And to be at the bottom of the ocean is where things start to actually get more emotionally intense for them. And the further down they go, the deeper they get into what's actually um, up, what their relationship is actually about and who they actually are about as people. Right. And we get to have the moment um, they get to realize how similar they are and that they just both wanted to be friends. They both wanted a friend. Yeah. Um, and they both noticed each other. Right. And I, I will say the flashback to the parade is, is again, another one of those little moments that I forget. And then every time I watch it, the Steven as the bubble suds costume in the parade, uh-huh. I, I just absolutely adore the whole idea. I love the idea that Greg was saying, Hey, We'll put bubbles in your hair, and you'll just look like a bubble boy, and then you'll be on the float, and it'll be great. Oh, the bubble boy. Oh, geez. Of course he's going to have a bubble. Right? He's the bubble boy from the car wash. Ah. So we have them sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, I really, again, with the animation, we get this whole color shift in the color story of the episode. It's all the jewel tones and very much centers us in the pink and rosiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when we do get that flashback, I always as- associate flashbacks in the show with Rose. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much of that is on purpose at this point. I'm not sure either. Um, I'm not sure that we get that much of a sense of, well, then we can talk about it when we talk about the next episode. Because right. the next episode kind of plays with that narrative convention. And there's and there's a, lo- a lot of foreshadowing, I think, just in the fact that you know, Stephen's power is a bubble and it's also a rose colored bubble. So he's going to be looking at things literally through rose colored glass, essentially. Yeah. 
Um, and it's the rose-colored ring that he re- found from, you know, that Connie had dropped. Right. You um, know, that's a color that he picked up on immediately. And it's also what then they're chased down for, right? Because it stands out to the worm thing. <laughs> and of course, and of course, the monster would be going after something rose-colored. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of little things like that that are just on the edge enough. Like, they they could be on purpose. They could also just kind of be coincidental. Um, at least with the color story, I don't see how <laughs> that could be on accident. Um, but, yeah, there, there's a lot going on in this episode that I think... On previous watch throughs, I didn't pick up on because I was mostly just like, ah, Stephen and Connie, Stephen and Connie are friends now. It's always so happy because that's about as far as I get with it because I think they're so cute. But yeah, so then we have the really great chase scene of them getting out of the ocean and uh, Stephen ties the lizard. Ties the monster in a knot. Yeah, until it basically poofs itself. Um. Under the weight of the collapsing dock. Yeah, which is kind of dark, to be honest. We get that moment at the end where Stephen and Connie look a wee bit traumatized, and <laughs> the dust cloud is, is parting and leaving them there. What did you think of it? I think the screech is what really unsettles me every time. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems really intense. I mean, when the dock is breaking apart, I'm thinking, oh, the monster's going to escape now. You know, there's going to be even more destruction, but then it just poofs itself. And the cloud is really big. Yes. Um, I mean, it is kind of a traumatic sort of thing that, to happen. I also think it's kind of interesting that it's the dock, because the dock is one of the... It, it is something that we saw, I don't know if it's the same dock, but there's the, the a dock that Connie and Stephen are on earlier in the episode. Right where we see this juxtaposition of their um of their personalities. Actually all of the segments leading up to the climax are kind of playing them off against each other. Um on the dock it was all about Stephen knows who um Onion is. He knows the people. Connie can identify all the different kind of boats that yeah. are there. They're both knowledgeable but their spheres of influence are completely different. And I think that that's what I love is that once Connie realizes that there's no maliciousness in Stephen, that he wasn't bluffing on purpose to fuck up, which I think she kind of almost is like, what the fuck are you doing? Once she realizes, essentially, Stephen is nervous and he was really looking forward to talking to her and then all this crazy stuff happened. She's much more forgiving and understanding. And we get the wonderful breakdown of hers before they actually get out of her saying it's not okay because no one else cares about her other than her parents. And so we get this really wonderful soft moment. And then when they break out and have this huge burst at the end, it it feels like a very dynamic moment of perspective shift, uh, kind of literally and figuratively. Yeah, there's... I think it's also kind of an alchemical moment for Stephen mm. because part of Stephen's problem is not looking at the consequences of things, um, not kind of having a, a full understanding of physical reality and, and how things might unfold. And in the climax, he kind of pulls it all together. He's the one that notices, oh, the monster's going after Connie's bracelet. Um, 
I can, you know, run through the docks and get the monster tied up uh, because it's it's going to follow me in that way. He's taking responsibility for what's going on rather than, you know, <laughs> running away in fear. He's not afraid. Um, whereas before he was kind of afraid just with like, you know, how is he going to introduce himself to this girl that he's got a crush on? Right. And I, I think that this is where we begin to see that Stephen really has what it takes to be a hero also, because we do get that sense that he will do something crazy, stupid, save the day, and then be about to piss himself right after. Uh-huh. Um, which I think leads into the next episode really well, honestly. I think we get a lot of emotional characterization and dramatic buildup here uh, that follows through into the next episode. And I think that's really the first time it works so well. Uh, and then we start seeing this format for the show a little bit more where we have a more serious episode and then kind of a lighter episode, but they feed into each other in terms of themes and kind of emotional development. Yeah. So, so sh shall we talk <laughs> about, talk about serious Steven then? I think so. I think I was headed there. Oh, if you're ready. Um, so first I wanted to talk about just a little bit, um, about the format of the episode because it, it feels much more, shall we say, postmodern? Yes. The starting in the middle, but also having the flashbacks and coming back to them and give me your impression. It's really uh, disorienting uh, right there at the beginning, because it feels like we're starting the story in media res, but we're not. Right. We're starting in a flashback in media res, which isn't going to be explained until the end. And... um yeah, I think that kind of narrative shift is really exciting to see, you know, to see the show doing. Um, given that the fact that we go into uh, these strawberry fields, I think it makes perfect sense to have that kind of narrative shenanigans going on. Uh, shenanigans is not the wrong word, is the wrong word. Have this kind of splicing going on. Well, uh, and... Th think, thinking about the Beatles song, which I've been listening to, like, incessantly for a couple of days now. Oh, that makes sense, too. Yeah. As I've already told you, and I guess we can talk about um, before we get into it, my immediate thought, um, because I, I think they say, oh, we're in a field of wild strawberries, uh, because I'm that English geek who uh, watched art films my freshman year of undergrad, thanks to Richard Jackson. I've seen the Ingmar Bergman movie, Wild Strawberries. And that is actually what popped into my head. And I thought, well, Rebecca Sugar might be referencing that. She could. Um, and I, I wanted I, to read this little wiki summary. Yes, it's really good. That uh, Wild Strawberries is a 1957 Swedish film written and directed by Ingmar Bergman about an old man recalling his past. The original Swedish title is Smutronstallet, maybe? which literally means the wild strawberry patch, but idiomatically signifies an underrated gem of a place, often with personal or sentimental value. A gem um, of a place. And one of the big things in that movie is that this man is remembering his, his wife who has passed away because he has met someone who looks a lot like her and, uh, has her spirit, if I'm remembering things correctly. You've actually watched it more recently now. Yeah, so he's uh, he's kind of a icy cold 
uh, man with not much concern for other people's feelings. Mm. And he's going to uh, a cathedral in Lund um, to receive um, an honorary, some, some honors for having been a doctor for 50 years. And his daughter-in-law, who calls him uncle, decides to come along with him in the car ride. Mm. And uh, he stops at a, a childhood home. That's where the, you know, ends up in a strawberry, strawberry patch and has this uh, lucid dream almost or a, a lucid flashback where he's actually wandering around the environment now, you know, uh, 60, 70 years previous when he was when he was small and seeing all of his brothers and sisters and cousins and um, how the we get some insight into what things might have happened in his past that made him become bitter. So, and the reason I, I wanted to follow through is because whether or not it's on purpose, uh, it kind of feels like it has to be on purpose, to be honest. But the whole reference is about really big abstract ideas of time and what makes you you to some degree. And I, I, I would say coming back to this episode, I wouldn't disagree that there is some of that in here, and especially because we will return to this location. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let me point out some of the ways where considering this movie makes a lot of sense in juxtaposition with this episode. Right. Because first of all, this episode is Serious Steven, and um, the protagonist in the movie is ultra serious. Right. And his emotional journey is to kind of let that go and to recognize his regrets uh, get through them and actually start opening up and having some warmth towards other people uh, in his life, even though he's, you know, approaching death. So I think that kind of works here because Stephen is trying to be serious and struggling to overcome his own regrets with the teacup incident, for example. And when he comes to accept uh, what that is for, for what it is, he's able to use that in a way to understand what the hell is actually going on and to resolve the situation for them. Um, and that, and that that happens like in a flashback dream, Stephen is supposedly sleeping <laughs> during, during that moment when, when uh, Garnet is taking him across the, the gauntlet. You are asleep. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> oh, I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and then there's also another thing, mm-hmm. which, you know, okay, just to bring up some future information, uh, in another episode in the future, we discover that this location is actually somewhere in Scandinavia. Right. And this being a Swedish film, Wild Strawberries, it just seems like another nod in that direction. Yeah. Uh, so if there are any geeks listening to us who are like, man, I gotta watch this Wild Strawberries movie, now is the time. I, I also think that it would be impossible not to think of, like you said, the, um, Strawberry Fields, uh, Beatles song. Living is easy with eyes closed. Nothing is real 
Yes. So, um, Strawberry Fields is a very complicated, um, piece of, uh, music. Right. Um, there's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of overdubbing. And the most significant thing about it is that the, um, the sound engineer, George Martin, ended up splicing together two different takes of the song, speeding up the first one and slowing down the second one so that they would actually be at the same pitch. Hmm. And a minute into the song, um, suddenly the instrumentation completely changes. You know, a cello starts coming in. That's because there's this splice moment. And they actually even overdub some um, timpanis, I think, that Harrison is playing. Okay, Um, that makes sense. There's some interesting stuff that Ringo is doing with the drumming, which is like kind of beyond my ability to to talk about it very much. But there's there's a kind of a swing to it um, that's really... That's really neat. That kind of holds the whole thing together because the drumming is consistent throughout it. I think the drumming was actually done uh, on a separate track altogether as well. I'm not sure now. That's entirely possible. Um, hey, and and then there's also this what was considered a you know a radical new thing is that the end of Strawberry Fields fades out and then comes back with a coda, and we don't have anything like that in this episode per se, although it might be that, you know, that's kind of a nod to it at the beginning. It's been reversed. Um, but True. that was kind of a radical thing for a pop song to do. And I, I think just a lot of that era of, of the Beatles um, and the fact that Strawberry Fields uh, is a, an actual place. Uh, yeah. And um, there are all these kind of layers of reference there. But mm-hmm. so much of the Beatles of that era, their music almost sounds like it's speeding and slowing up in time. There's a lot of the psychedelic influence. Mm-hmm. Living is easy with eyes closed. Right. And Good. there's one of my favorite moments uh, is the first time we have attack butterflies, which the attack butterflies keep coming <laughs> back. So, like, I kind of am curious if Rebecca Sugar just has some kind of thing with butterflies where she's like, why do people like them? They're actually really terrifying. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. This is me making like some headcanon for the, the divine creator. Well, I mean, the yeah. Thinking about the butterflies, especially in juxtaposition with um, mindful education. Yes. It's like, okay, I, I'm really, really tempted to read a lot more into these butterflies than was probably intended at the time. <laughs> Well, and it, it's really hard to tell, right? Um, especially because we get this great quote from Stephen. And again, I always, I keep returning to Stephen as the drunken Buddha. Because they're like, dude, it's just butterflies. He's like, yeah, but they looked a lot bigger when they were on my eyeballs. My eyeballs. <laughs> and it's so, it's such a wonderful little moment. Because it doesn't sound very profound. It's not very profound. But if you take a step back and go, okay, well... Of course they're going to look bigger if they're up in your face. And that's so much of what Steven has an issue with, is he responds to it immediately in the moment when it looks like a much bigger deal than it is, but can't really see things coming, even though he really should have. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm wondering if the butterflies in this episode are symbolizing his his fear of growing up, Um, that he's... He's being told that he needs to be serious and he's not ready to be serious. 
um, even when he's trying to be serious, he's very unserious about it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that he essentially has to learn that his idea of what it means to be serious isn't actually what being serious is. It's a very childish idea of seriousness. Right? Uh, there's this idea that he just needs to, you know, act like a robot and say, serious, Stephen, activate. That he's adulting. Look at him go. <laughs> Um, but it's not until the end when he actually pays attention and starts using them critical thinking skills, uh, that it all starts to gel and we get a sense that maybe Steven is learning. But before we skip to the end, I really appreciate that this is a bit of an opus in some ways and that like, they really talk about Steven's choices to jump in over his head in this extensively, but I feel like we don't come back to it in quite this way again, um, which I know is jumping ahead of us a little bit, but uh, what what do you think of how this is structured as just part of Stephen's character growth? Oh, that's a good question. Considering I hadn't actually been thinking about that. I mean, I think there's, I think we have to take that flashback into into consideration for that. Right. And that Stephen is really um, embarrassed um, about the teacup incident and uh, especially embarrassed that he wasn't able to complete the ride that he actually ends up throwing up (laughs) and and jumping out Um, that that which kind of ties into his sense of failing. Well, and he I think something that's interesting about Stephen is we're seeing how he responds to these situations and the second he knows that it's not right, he wants to get out of it. And even though he still has that sense of self-preservation and that's a good thing, he still isn't thinking his actions through. Right. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting way to explore that. Sorry, I interrupted you. That's okay. <laughs> no, please. Um, the other thing is that there's um, there's a couple of other things that I think kind of obliquely point to Stephen's development here. Um, one of them has got to be the circularity of the teacup ride mm. slash pyramid temple of kind of going around in circles. And that kind of ties back to the rose ring that Steven got for Connie uh, in the previous episode. And maybe even just spinning his wheels on the bicycle in the sand on the beach at oh, the very okay. beginning yeah. um, of that episode. So at some point, you kind of have to break out of your old patterns. And, and it's a, it's also, even if you're going through those old patterns, you still have to be moving forward. Yeah. You might have to re- relearn the same lessons from a different point of view, kind of spinning around it. But ultimately, you're going to be headed in some direction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I really like how Stephen comes to this realization because of a very physical reason. You know, he starts getting the sweats and he passes out again. Um, and it's his physical reaction that really s- makes him confront it mentally. Getting um, nauseated. Right. Uh, which, man, is that a wonderful conversation about anxiety that isn't really about anxiety. Right. He, the anxiety is, isn't actually this emotional thing. I mean, it is, but it isn't. I mean, it's it's more than that. It, it's actually tied to the physical reality that he's experiencing. Yeah. Um, With the teacup ride, it wasn't that he was scared. It was that he was sick. He was nauseated. And 
I think there's an interesting aspect here of knowing the limitations of your body and also knowing that other people can't judge those limitations for you. Because the gems, I mean, they're gems. Pearl is sitting on the teacup ride with a pot of tea uh, because she just that severely misunderstood the point of the ride. Uh, <laughs> Amethyst just kind of looks bored. I think she's asleep. Yeah, um, but that's partially because she's sitting with Pearl in the teapot. And then we always get Garnet as being the one who's just kind of like, yo, Steven, where your head at? <laughs> this is fun. You look sick. He's like, no, I'm not. So if the um, if the temple, mm-hmm. the pyramid temple, which is actually a circular temple, is a metaphor for getting over the things that you're doing over and over and over again and actually learning how to move forward, it kind of paints the visual gag of Amethyst ending up encased in a block of ice in, in a different sort of light. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point in her development, she really isn't advancing. No, and we get, we get, um, again, uh, some great visual storytelling because we have Pearl who's sitting there trying to work things out with her little head, um, projector. And she's very much logicking as hard as she can. We have Amethyst who's just fucking running brute force through it again and again and again and again. And like you said, getting nowhere. And Garnet who's just like, well, we'll figure this out by doing it and doing it and doing it. So she's similar to Amethyst, but has a calm resolve. But it's Steven's gut that ultimately helps them figure it out. The fact that he is physically sick. The, the thing that makes him most human. His weakness. And I think that that's a talk, talk about dynamic. learning learning from your gut, <laughs> right? <laughs> we also get some of the uh, history here on the walls, right? Yes, and um, it's not talked about as much as it is later, but I definitely remember that Tumblr scoured this episode, <laughs> um, and I, I think continues to. I bet it did. I didn't notice the the murals at all. I mean, they're completely elided. Um, you kind of see them. And then like Steven's like, Ooh, look at the pyramid. He's, he doesn't even see the image of his own mother up on the wall. Right. I, that kind of, your voice kind of cut out. Who seems to be facing off against some it. creature that we would probably find out more about in the future. <clears throat> but anyways, yeah. So the temple is a place of mythology. Whether we want to dive into that, that picture of Rose, you know, putting up her hands, kind of like, no, this is not going to happen, and being attacked by some other sort of being that seems to... I mean, we see pictures of of her of her nemesis in three different parts mm. on the wall. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, because for a show... I mean, it's had quite a few episodes now, but we have several locations that we continue to return to and build on the mythology of that location, both the strawberry fields and the pyramid, we will revisit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that is one of the things that makes it so interesting going back to it is starting to see, okay, well, at the time, everyone was like, oh, that looks like it must be Rose Quartz and who's that and blah, blah, blah. Um, And you can still go back and say, oh, that must be one of the diamonds and it looks kind of like this. Uh, the way that the the universe takes shape is um, 
ridiculously organic. Uh, and I, I adore that about it, that it's very thought through um, in a very well-conceived universe of Steven Universe. <laughs> I mean, we, and we even realize that this is a place of history as well as mythology when we first arrive in the strawberry fields because um the crystal gems are like this was a you know this was a site of a huge battle way back when right and we see you know giant swords and shields scattered about the giant strawberries right and you know it's the first time we really get an implication that of how violent what happened was even though we don't necessarily know exactly what happened we see what is clearly a battlefield and for some reason has giant strawberries, um, which I don't think we know yet why the strawberries are giant. <laughs> no, I don't know if we ever will, or if that's just going to be one of those things. Well, I have a theory about it. I think it's this, I think it's from the light. Oh, that but, makes but sense. Not, but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I was also laughing because every time someone says, Oh, I have a theory. In my head, it says, I sing, it could be rabbits. Um, anybody who likes Buffy, that's a shout out to you. It could be rabbits. Bunnies! Bunnies! Let's be bunnies! Anyway, um, so yeah, this also is another episode where we get Steven and his ukulele. Which also points to the musical reference of Strawberry Fields. Right. And the fact that even though this is his first serious mission, he brought it along because it's important to him and makes him happy, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, and that plays absolutely no role in solving the mystery of the temple. None whatsoever, except for it distracts him at one point when he feels like he needs to stop and tune it. And Garnet's like, yo, priorities. And he's like, right, priorities. Uh, and then he passes out shortly after that, I think. But yeah, it, it plays for a nice bookends, and we also get him making up his little song at the end and getting attacked by the attack butterflies again. For not being serious? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just a visual gag. You know, I have questions about it. because Such as? I, so the, the quote he says about the butterflies, they looked a lot bigger when they were in my eyeballs. Well, he thought they were going to die inside the pyramid, and now they're out and he's playing on his ukulele. Um, clearly, that issue was not as big as it seemed, but the eye- the butterflies in his eyeballs are still going to be really annoying. Um, there's a, a kind of poetic... Stephen's making light of something that was actually more serious than he's taking credit for it, or, which indicates he's repressing the trauma that he's just gone through. And that's why the butterflies are there to kind of remind him, Hey dude, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely like this reiterative um, moment of how his perspective is continually changing, but some things Steven's just always going to see the same way. And that's both the bad and the good thing about Steven, right? Is he gets a little narrow sighted. He knows he wants to do something. He doesn't really think through where that's going. Like when he runs across the floor lights. Right. I mean, there's there's definitely like a very easy path that could be taken to get across that floor. That is not the path that Steven takes. Oh, God, no. Yeah. <laughs> he jumps all around and then falls over because he, because he's jumping, jumping up and down off balance. Right. 
And, I mean, even at the beginning, he is floating up in the, I don't know, what do we call that, transport beam? Upside down. Yeah, and, you know, Pearl is scolding him, and he falls. That's why he falls in the strawberries to begin with. Um, He's scared of being serious. Well, because to him, serious means no emotions. It means robotic. Ah, okay. Right? Yeah, and and he can't be, he can't be unrobotic. Un- unemotional. That's not Steven at all. And the attack butterflies are very emotional. Whenever they yes. come back, they are very much tied to emotion. Ah, okay. There we go. That's Now it's making sense. Yeah. It's, I still think Sh- Sugar might have some kind of beef with butterflies. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to tweet at her. <laughs> you got something wrong with butterflies? Some bad history. <laughs> this temple is bigger on the inside. It is. We do get... Yeah. I don't think there's any reference to it whatsoever, except if you like Doctor Who and are like, sure! Well, it's bigger on the inside, just like the Crystal Gems Temple is bigger on the inside. True. So, you know, not even thinking about Doctor Who, there's got to be some kind of similarity between there's... this between this upside-down pyramid, which is called a temple. True. Um, I I definitely think we start getting a little bit more connections to the idea that their temple isn't just because they're the crystal gems. It is that uh, gem technology. We get a little bit more hint that this is an alien culture. One of the things I love about the show, and I continue, is that even though it's an alien culture, it feels so very, like, quite literally grounded to us because we're talking about gems that <laughs> in real life come out of the ground um, and in the show come out of the ground. Um, so there's a really interesting earthy element. I think the fact that the pyramid temple is is made of stone and is brown uh, on the outside and very gray on the inside. And th- there's, a, again, there's a very strong color story around it. Um, in addition, it's to very serious. Things. Yeah. Um, the mural is very serious. The, the traps are very serious. And it's a pyramid essentially standing on its head. So it's very off putting just to look at because, you know, for, we don't expect something that's shaped like that to be able to support itself in any way. <laughs> when Stephen reverses the pyramid, the gravity inside the pyramid reverses itself. Right. So it's got its own internal gravity as well. Right. Which is... This speaks the gravity of the situation. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> My head was so not there, but I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I... <laughs> No, still giggling. There's an interesting thing to me. I have realized when I watch uh, shows that are a little bit more philosophically engaging, in my mind, I separate it from science fiction, or at least I stop thinking of them as much as aliens, per se, as just beings that have their own history on Earth. Um, So it it almost feels like uh, folklore or... um, some kind of fantasy based just because it feels so grounded in the real world, especially for a cartoon about crystal gem warriors <laughs> and a uh, half gem, half human boy who likes his ukulele, um, which I guess his ukulele has 
like a tie-dye design on it or something. I'm not sure. It was a few episodes before I realized that the the uke wasn't just uh dirty. <laughs> Cuz it's 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 pretty colors on it, but the, this was the first time I really remember paying attention to it and there's strawberry jam all over everything. Mhm. Um but yeah, that's a side note. <laughs> just to kind of play on the um underworld mm. theme that I brought up with the previous episode. Right. Um you know, in Bubble Buddies, it's when they go down to the, you know, through, not just the bottom of the ocean, but then through a crack in the bottom of the ocean that they kind of like get down to their deepest emotions. And here, um, there's, you know, when we get to the climax, Garnet starts punching holes into the floor until they, you know, the floor disintegrates and they fall right into um, what's going on underneath. And that, what the, what's going on underneath is basically the teacup ride, which goes back to what Stephen was one of those things that Stephen was trying not to to deal with, emotionally speaking, uh, and just kind of being embarrassed and afraid of, a, of that incident. It's not something that he wants to experience again, but he's got to experience it again to get over it. And I think at this point, we are still, within the context of the show, I think we're still learning just how much Stephen is not processing, how much he's kind of on hold in... Like, like you said, we have, we have more than one character who is not really progressing. Uh, we have Amethyst who is, is stuck being a bit of a kid. And we definitely, um, deal a lot with Steven not wanting to grow up, but also, I don't know. We get more into it later, but there's a little bit of me that is just like, it, the show kind of ponders whether or not he really can grow up. Yeah. Um, there are several times where we kind of get the the vague worry of like, oh, we don't know how he's going to be. <laughs> we'll just hope for the best. We, you know, we love Steven. Are, are we done? Um, Do you have any, any other things you wanted to add in? The obelisk under the floor. Mm. It's um, It's got a pyramid on top of it. And it looks like each of the four faces of that pyramid has four different facial expressions on it. Right. And when Garnet launches Stephen at the obelisk, and he tries to pull the uh, the gem that's in it free, it doesn't budge. But we see his face reflected in that gem. And to me, that was kind of a telling moment, um, that Stephen really is a crystal gem in his own right. And that might be the one time that we actually see his face being serious in that mirror. And then the pyramid on top shifts, and what is a dour sort of expression on one face of it becomes a happier sort of face. Um, the iconography is really stark and uh, abstract, and it took me several times of looking at those images to realize that the facial expressions are subtly different. And um, and it goes from kind of a frown to a smile to a... It, there, there's almost a slight emotional intonation to them. Yes, there's just, just, it's very slight, it's very subtle. But once that emotional intonation changes from kind of scowling to being um, more, I wouldn't say jubilant, but pleased maybe. Um, and at that moment, the gem pops free, and they poof the pyramid. Yeah, it, it, so, there's so there's a moment this... where it almost, it's, it's like it considers him. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and with what they've just been through, there's a little bit of, I don't know, he, he, he is, he is deemed worthy, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> I am surprised at how many little questions going back this episode brings up for me, just because it is touching on so much of the mythos that we get later, even. Yeah. Here's an interesting visual thing about how that temple poops, which is that all of the uh, pyramids that are floating around upside down in a circle after Stephen pulls out the gem uh, start dematerializing in a very specific way. Um, we start seeing little rectangles of light kind of like digitizing. It, it looks very digital as the, the light kind of pulls pulls off and away from the, the material reality that they're on. And once the light becomes digitized, then it poops. Right. So, I don't know, there's something kind of metatextual to, about that to me, because TV shows are images of light projected on a screen. And we also have the technology within the show that is very much their projections of light that have matter. Hard light. Yeah. There are so many little things like that that they they stand as really interesting metaphors on their own. But uh, as we keep going forward, it really does. They all kind of build on each other. Now I want to watch the um, Red Dwarf episode, Legion. <laughs> I can't even. I'm horrible with titles. Which one is that? That's the one where Rimmer gets a uh, hard light um, hologram upgrade. Oh. Right. So so that he can now be subjected to slapstick violence. Right? That was the entire thing is they just were like, dude, Chris Berry hasn't gotten to touch anybody in a long time. <laughs> now let's humiliate him. Right? We'll just smack him around. He needs more abuse. Yeah, I totally And you haven't. can hear us talk about that on Searching I, for Fouchal, another Ois Baseman podcast. I totally have not been listening to that to that podcast. <laughs> she lied. I was gonna say I don't even know <laughs> I don't listen to podcasts period because I'm a bad person well you produce podcasts so I mean why listen to them you'd just be listening to yourself uh yeah 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 that's all the notes that I really have on this one. Oh, yeah one more thing I always have one more thing mm -hmm. um Garnet in this episode has been, um, she's kind of been presented as very stoic and uh, emotionless through the opening um, battery of episodes. But there are several moments in here where we see some warmth and smiling coming from her. Yeah, I, I consistently hear this complaint that Garnet is emotionless. And I think that if you read her as emotionless, you are not reading, like paying enough attention to that character. Um, because the more you go back and see just really subtle animation shifts and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. Gar Garnet is super dynamic. Um, yeah. Like, like she's got a line, personally. she's got know. a line that's repeated. Um, this is going to be intense. Right. Uh, she says, and she says it very seriously when they're inside the temple, but that's what triggers the flashback to the teacup incident where she says, this is going to be really intense. And you can see that she's smiling. The tone of voice is just completely like enthusiastic. 
in her still very tamped down sort of way, but it's definitely enthusiastic. Yeah. Um, she smiles at her gun show joke when Stephen is, oh, you know, yeah. showing off his biceps. It's like, I she's like, put away that goofy, gun show. Yeah. I love how goofy Garnet is with Stephen. Um, <laughs> that familial relationship is a lot of the heart of the show for me. Um, it, she comes we, across as genuinely enjoying his company. And so when we get more of those episodes later, um, I think most touchingly in the answer. Uh, but we really get that sense that Garnet really loves Stephen. And despite all of the things that they go through in this episode, Garnet doesn't care that Stephen passes out and she has to carry him. She says, he, you know, I took care of you because you had to take a nap. And she doesn't shame him at all. Not She's at not all. It's not like you weren't being serious. It's like... <laughs> it's just kind of like, well, we knew this would happen. You know, Stephen wasn't quite ready for this. We kind of figured this was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. The repeated line. Right. This is going to be intense. This is going to be intense. And it turns out that the flashback is actually really intense. Yeah, and that's... For that's, Stephen. <laughs> has the moment with Smiley yelling at him, which is so... Smiling all the time. Yeah. And to the point that it's a grimace. Um, all of the traps in the temple were predicted by the uh, mural. Right. Yeah. The the And the fact that even Stephen gets a lot of it. He's like, oh, looks like there's going to be some triangles. <laughs> yes. He makes, like, that ex- he makes that explicit, which kind of like points back to, you know, the, the more interesting mural of Rose Quartz. Um, it, it kind of promises that there's going to be, again, a payoff here, that this has been deliberately planted. The pic- I mean, if the if the traps are you know right, demonstrably no. for for foreshadowing, then I do certainly have that's- some questions though in terms of like just the sheer fact that we have amethyst, garnet, and pearl, and none of them actually look at the shit that's on the wall, like the literal writing on the wall. Um, <laughs> and maybe it is written in an old dialect or whatever, but they really don't pay attention to them much i i think but later on they kind of imply it's because well it's from the point of view of the gems that they were fighting against um so they probably aren't going to believe the stories on the walls that much either but yeah i don't know that is something that i was thinking about this time of like why aren't they just don't they know something about gem technology that they would be able to read this shit well seems to me that um the writing on the wall isn't in gem. Mm. Mm. So maybe it's not the gems who wrote it. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Good call. <laughs> Anything else you want to say? This this episode was a lot more interesting the second time around, or third time around, than the first one. I mean, I thought it was a really good episode to begin with. Yeah. And very engaging. Uh, but it had more layers to it than I even realized at the time. Right. The whole show, but I mean, the whole, my, my whole experience with the show has been the same, so. Yeah, I, I'm kind of, you know, have my little fangasms, because I'm like, keeps getting more interesting. <laughs> I love you, Steven Universe. <laughs> I also recently was told um, by a friend of mine who is faculty at the university here that he 
was convinced to watch the show. Not by me, or the fact that I'm podcasting, because I don't think he's listened to us. But, uh-huh. but by another faculty member's eight-year-old daughter. And her extremely interesting uh, description of the Crystal Gem Rebellion, um, essentially. Because uh, he tried to explain it to me, and I'm like, okay, you've already forgotten things, but that's fine. Uh, so, <laughs> long story short, Steven Universe is still spreading. Makes me happy. Yay. Yay. Uh, so what are we talking about next episode? Oh, let's take a look. I'm sure there are going to be some good ones. We aren't quite up to um, uh, Giant Woman itself yet. That will not be in the next one. But it'll, be in, it'll be in the following podcast. Uh, this time we get, uh, in our next episode, we will be talking about Tiger Millionaire and Steven's Lion. Oh, wow. I'm excited. Tiger Tiger Millionaire was a big episode for me the first time around. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm super psyched. And maybe I'll, I'll actually do some watching of, of uh, wrestling to <laughs> prime myself for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, you go ahead and do that. Uh-huh. I'll get in the right <laughs> headset. Headspace. <laughs> well, until then. Until then. We'll see you next time on A Giant Woman. And, yeah. Because giant women are giants. They're the best. Big. Big. Whatever. Bye.